0: Hey, this is Coach Jay. Welcome back to another episode of Coaching Falcons. In my last episode, I had a conversation with Coach Potter, and we talked offensive philosophies, uh, what he did in order to uh, change his philosophies, and how he was able to utilize uh, the talent that we had at Perry Meridian uh, to get a lot out of his players. Today, I'm going to talk defense and I'm going to give you some idea of some of my thought processes uh, as I became the defensive coordinator, give you a little bit of the history of how that happened, and then just some of my beliefs and what some of my expectations were as the defensive coordinator at Perry Meridian for uh, about 10 or 12 years. Defensively, I started as a defensive back coach at the freshman level And in 1987, and then by 1989, I was on the varsity level. As a varsity assistant, I kind of became the assistant defensive coordinator with Coach Kelly Clore, who had once been the head coach of uh, Perry Meridian High School. Kelly was a math teacher and probably the smartest man I ever worked with in football and or track and field. Kelly became a mentor to me. He helped me develop as a football and a track coach. Kelly was a great individual that had practical knowledge that he used with athletics. I knew that Kelly was going to retire within the next few years, so I started to prepare for the day when I could apply for and be the defensive coordinator. As a matter of fact, I had a chance to become an assistant coach for Dick Dullahan at Ben Davis in 1993. I would have taken the position at Ben Davis. However, I probably never would have become a coordinator, and I wanted to become a better coach and have a greater influence on the football team. One other thing that caused me not to go to Ben Davis, believe it or not, was teacher benefits. Uh, ben Davis did not have the same benefits as Prairie Township had. I had a young family and could not pass up Perry Township's teachers' health and uh, retirement benefits. Therefore, I had to say no to Dick Dullahan. Now, who really says no to Dick Dullahan? This guy had won state championships at Carmel and uh, Ben Davis, and, and in 1991, I think it was, his Ben Davis Giants was the national champions, the best high school team in the entire country. So, for me, just to become an assistant at Ben Davis. Uh, wasn't really good enough, and if I would have stayed there, I probably would have won a state championship with Dick because he had won a few more after uh, he had given me the opportunity to come and work for him. One other thing is that having a, having that young family, I would have lost about eight thousand dollars in income and benefits, plus the fact I would have to driven to the west side every day. It just didn't work out. Anyway, 1984, Kelly core retired, and in the spring of 1995, Coach Potter appointed me as defensive coordinator. Becoming the defensive coordinator was the biggest change in responsibility in my young coaching career. Not only did I move up from the JV to the varsity, I was in charge of developing defensive practice plans and a defensive scheme. During the summer of 95, uh, at a Bishop Dullahan skills camp at Franklin College, Potter, myself, Coach Wade spent hours developing a defensive identity for the fall of 1995 season. I wanted to use a four-man front as a base defense. And in order to test the soundness of my defense, Coach Potter, Coach Zimmerman and Coach Wade threw out all types of offensive schemes that I would have to defend. It seemed like it was a thousand different offensive formations, motions, uh, and we did this between practice sessions at the Bishop Dullahan camp or at lunch or after the uh, day's practices had ended. It really challenged me to develop a defense, especially the defensive front, that would match the offense. For the most part, I was able to counter whatever they came up with, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. With that in mind, uh, we decided to run a 4-3 defensive scheme in the fall season. Throughout the summer of 1995 we began to implement the new defenses, just a little at a time. During the fall season, defensively we struggled a bit and early because we couldn't really stop the run. I didn't have many athletes up front, which I would have to adjust to the lack of athletes up front by adjusting my secondary. I would bring in an extra player or bring uh, a safety into the box in order to slow down and or stop the run. By the end of this season of 1995, I eventually evolved into a 4-4 cover three base defense. The following year, 1996, we started in a 4-4 and I spent the season with a cover one defense because I really had a good defensive back. Uh, Anthony Thomas stands out as of right now. During that season, we were better defensively, and we were able to hold our opponent to fewer points per game than the year before. I ran the 4-4 for three more years until the offenses began to change and start throwing the ball more. For example, Bloomington South, head coached by Mo Moriarty, had a quarterback that was a freshman by the name of Rex Grossman. And Rex Grossman was a talent. Of course, he ends up, you know, becoming an all-star and going to the University of Florida and and end up playing in the NFL for several years. Well, Grossman began to throw the ball, and we had to defend that. At the same time, Bloomington South ran a split-back veer running game. I had to make a decision. To change my defensive philosophy to slow down the high-powered offenses in our conference. And the conference that we played in was Conference Indiana. Ten teams, all teams were about the same in size, but talent-wise, when it first started, it was the toughest conference in the state of Indiana. That changed over the years, but at at that time, in the late, early to mid-90s, Conference Indiana was the toughest. I had to figure out how to stop the run, defend the pass without making substitutes because of the offensive sets or the personnel that they use. Once again, during the summer of 1999 at Bishop Dullahan camp again, I started to experiment with a 5-2 front and a secondary that was based on cover 2. Again, myself and Potter did the situational chalk talk and began camp in which we put all the examples of formations and motions and sets to cover how sound this new defense that we were going to start to run. At the same time, I started to have the Perry Meridian defensive backs and linebackers that came to Bishop Dullahan to start playing cover two so that we would know how to run that once the season started. The players were able to give me some feedback on how they were able to use it. I could see how uh, there were flaws, what I needed to adjust, and so on. So the fall of that year, I began to play in a 52 front. This became my base defense for the remainder of the time that I was a defensive coordinator. My my philosophy finally evolved into what is a penetrating defense. The reason for penetration was to screw up the offense and to create blocking chaos, plain and simple. Screw them up, make the ball go sideways, tackle the ball behind the line of scrimmage, and just literally get after the offense. That became my philosophy, and we became pretty good at that. Now, my five-man front was to be a gap-controlled defense, control the line of scrimmage. I had a nose man, two down tackles. Two ends or outside linebackers on the line of scrimmage. Two inside linebackers and four defensive backs. That was the base defense. 5-2 with four defensive backs. We played gap control. We had responsibilities per gap. I rarely, if ever, lined up a down lineman in a head-up position because we weren't strong enough and we could not defend two gaps when you're head up when I got in the players in a two or four or six technique that meant that they were head up and then once you got head up you had to take control of both gaps and we just weren't strong enough and couldn't do that I didn't have a nose man that was able to control two gaps until the fall of 2002 now in my years of coaching uh, that one player could do that. The rest of the time, my defensive linemen were in the gaps and they had gap control. Um, the other thing is that the lineman, the lineman that we had, had to be quick. The noseman had to be quick. He didn't have to be big. You know, my best noseman that I had. Was was two guys, Leon Baker, Derek Fowler, and LeVar Brown. Those were my my uh nose men. And two of the three were only about 170 pounds, but they were quick. Uh, they forced the center to be more concerned about snapping the ball than blocking first. That was the goal. Okay, get in there, cause havoc. A quick nose man forced the center to make choices. It it forced the guard to make choices. Since the nose man usually shaded or took a gap, particularly A gaps or B gaps, depending on how I had him aligned, then it kept the offensive guards from pulling, or it confused him in the center, or it confused the guard in the tackle. At the same time, the defensive tackles, because it was a gap control defense, it forced the offensive tackles to block, to block him or block the person in the gap, and he didn't know what we were going to do. We could line up, head up, and then shoot the gap. So the tackle and the guards, they were confused. If they didn't know, if they didn't have sound uh, rules, then they were screwed. It really slowed down. Uh, the guards and tackles from pulling. It slowed down trap blocks. Uh, My inside linebackers were free really to make lots of tackles, and they were able to react more often without having a lineman uh, to shed on their way to the ball carrier. So those three guys or those four guys, those five guys up front caused a lot of confusion with the Offensive line. Now, the outside linebackers, or the defensive ends, as I called them at the time, they had just a few responsibilities. Number one, pressure and knock the hell out of the quarterback. Number two, contain the edge in order to force the running back inside where linebackers and safeties and pursuit could knock the hell out of them. It was rare that I had an outside linebacker to drop into coverage. I just didn't want that to happen. The only exception is when I forced I was forced to play a 4-3 defense because of the offensive set or because of the personnel that, that came out there. And then I would shift from a 52 and go into a 4 3 and would still keep four defensive backs. I did have her. Uh, have outside linebackers pretend that they were in coverage by splitting the difference between the nearest wide receiver and the end man on the line of scrimmage. It looked like they were in coverage, but really they weren't. They were still to attack the run and go knock the hell out of the quarterback. It was sort of a tweener position that no one really exploited too often against us. Now let's talk defensive backs. Defensive backs and inside linebackers were taught how to pattern read uh, receivers and align based on you know schemes that we had for that group that week. I shifted to a cover two, and for the most part, um, it, we ran cover two very well. You know, when playing cover two, we actually had two extra men that was on the line of scrimmage. So if they were running the ball, I mean, they had to get through um, nine people as opposed to seven. So playing cover two forced running backs to be contained at the line of scrimmage. Uh, As a matter of fact, I wanted the ball carriers to be tackled behind the line of scrimmage. You know that's what type of pressure defense I wanted. Get your behind on the other line of scrimmage if they're running the ball, and I want to see the ball tackled in the backfield. You see it, boom. The hole opens. Don't let the back come through the hole. Hell, you go through the hole and meet the, bat on the, the back on the other side of the linebacker on the other side of line scrimmage. That's that's how I wanted it played. We became such an attacking defense that. By the time that we got to uh or got used to playing this defense for about two or three years, in our 01 and 02 school season, football season, we had played this 5-2, and we had ironed out all the majority of the bugs. Uh the kids were used to playing it. They had played it for several, several years, and by the time that we got to the end of the 02 uh, season, the defense had 60 tackles for loss. The next year in 03, the defense had 70 tackles for loss. These are tackles behind the line of scrimmage 60 and 70 behind the line of scrimmage. That's an attacking defense. That caused confusion, and that's what I wanted to get accomplished. Next, let's let's concentrate on um, how we were as a team. I did not want my players on defense to miss tackles. You could not play on my defense if you could not tackle, plain and simple. Coach Potter had some people that would never, ever play for me on defense because they couldn't tackle. And I said, hey, coach, you know, take these guys and do something with them. They're not going to play for me because they can't tackle. I emphasized tackling every day. Every defensive team that I had, every defensive player that I had, had to fly to the ball. They had to have good feet. They had to get their feet in position to make tackles. And number one, they had to protect themselves. Because of that emphasis, we did not have very many, if any, that I can remember of concussions. I taught the players how to tackle with their chest, or as I used the term back then, tackle with your titties. We automatically had to get your feet in the correct position. There was no diving at legs. There was no... um, uh, going down to reach and, and, and tackle their ankles or any of that because when you do that, the first thing that happens is that your head goes down. And when your head goes down, that exposes your, your neck. That exposes your spine. That exposes you getting hurt. So if you have to tackle with your chest, you have to literally get your feet in the right position and you hit on the rise as opposed to hitting on down. Now, now granted, if someone is running to the end zone and you're trailing and you're trying to trip them up. Yeah. Dive at their feet and try to trip them up. But the chances of getting concussion, a concussion is literally nil, you know, not unless you fall and knock your head on the uh, sideline or something like that. So whether we did tackling stations, whether we did uh, tackle individually, we always tackle hell. There were times that we would tackle by the numbers you know, I would just say for five minutes, you know, I would say, you know, sit, cock, tuck, squat, shoot your arms, move your feet just to go through proper ways of tackling so they would not get hurt. Three days a week, usually we did some type of tackling, tackling drills. Uh, sometimes I did it. I, I put the defensive backs and linebackers in positions where they never ever had a squared up form tackle cuz you never do that. I would always put them in positions that they were chasing somebody down. You know, I'd put them at an angle that they were slightly behind somebody. And that that person could use the sideline as an extra tackler. That person had to know when the person was going to uh, cut back. So uh, there was always open field tackle because that's the toughest thing that you can do is tackle in the open field. And if you do it every day, if you do it all the time, people don't miss tackles. And so we didn't miss very many tackles. Whenever I watched game field or watch practice, I would analyze and analyze it to a point where I would get with players and say, well, this is why you missed the tackle." Okay, you're too far away to make that tackle. You can't be too far away. You can't be two yards away and make a tackle on somebody. You may, you may grab him, but the first thing that's going to happen if you're two yards away is that your head's going to go down. You have no leverage. You don't have feet, and he's going to run out of your tackle. So get your feet in the right tackling position. All right, now, the we'll transition to the secondary and uh, talk about Uh, how we played cover two. In order to play cover two, the cornerbacks had to learn how to funnel or guide the number one receiver, which was the widest receiver, inward. Okay, That means that he had to keep an outside leverage on the receiver and would not allow a receiver to have an outside release. I harped on that Every day. We funneled every day. You are not to let that receiver get an outside release. I don't care what he does. He can shake and bake and slick and do all that stuff. He does not get an outside release. The reason being is that there's an area from the sideline, about five yards from the sideline, behind the cornerback and to about 12 to 20 yards where the safety is most vulnerable okay uh, a outside release the quarterback could throw a fade to a wide receiver and hit in that area that's right behind the cornerback and right before the safety could get there so if you funneled That area is protected. Funneling was the weakest part, or or the best part, the strongest part of cover two. Cornerbacks had the four-set receiver inward so that the safety could be in position to defend that area that was behind uh, the corner. Every day we did it. Uh, Cornerback and safeties had a drill uh, every day. Both the corners and safety had to read number one and number two receivers. The inside linebackers had to read the number three receiver if there was one. So uh, with that in mind, the corners and the safeties would start to pattern read. The best drill that I taught, or you can teach any corner and safety that runs cover two, is to I would I would stand behind the corner and the safety. And then I would give the offensive receivers, either one, two, or three of them, uh, a route to run. But the safety in the corners couldn't see the route because I was giving the offense the route who could see me. So uh, I would give them every pass route that you could imagine. Uh, I would give hand signals uh, for each route uh, from running outs to slants to phase to post corners. The digs, the hitches, drags, bubbles, bubble screens, you name it, I had a hand signal that those receivers could use to challenge the corners and the safeties. By using pattern reads, it freed up the outside linebackers to cause havoc in the backfield. The other thing that I did to help the defense was to develop a meaningful pursuit drill uh, that forced this pursuit drill to force defensive players to take correct angles to the ball carrier or the receivers. The drill that I would start with would be that I would set out eight cones and all 11 players uh, were assigned to run to or around a specific cone. All of the up front linemen Before they could get into pursuit drill, they would be in a stance and then they would drop to their bellies because it takes a little time. You know, ball is going to be snapped, drop to their bellies, pop up, and then they would start a pursuit. I would have a ball carrier, which we call the rabbit. The ball carrier was to run like a sweep and then it was running Just a jog when we first started it so that all the defensive players knew which cones they had to get to. Each cone was labeled. There was a force cone, which was about two yards on the other side of the line of scrimmage. And so outside linebackers and defensive tackles to that side would go to the force cone. There were contained cones. There was a cutback cone. Uh, The last cone, cone number eight was like I called the hustle cone. Now that the rabbit was told to slow jog, the the other thing that I did was to uh, have each player touch the rabbit or the ball carrier with both hands, two-hand touch. If you just touch them with one hand, that was lazy to me. Okay, That means that their feet weren't in position to make tackles. Makes sense. Two-hand touch. It means means that you're closer to the ball carrier, which helped them make tackles. Uh, the key was to take correct angles, to touch the rabbit with their feet in a proper position. I've coached defensive backs, defensive back coaches. They've run pursuit drills, and, and some defensive coaches that I know would just have a pursuit drill they would just run it was more of a conditioning drill than actually learning something from it i didn't like that just running hell you have to have some marker to run to you know why not to me why not condition and do a proper pursuit drill at the same time my drills was designed to do that to have the defense to expect Runners to cut back and defenders um, to cross their face, which would cause them to miss tackles because of being out of position. By just running, you just ran. You know, I emphasize staying slightly behind the ball carries on on any sweeps and the use of the crossover run during the pursuit. You know, keeping your shoulders parallel to the line of scrimmage. That way, if their back decides to cut back, you could always adjust and cut back. That's those are simple rules, simple things that we did every day that always got us in a proper position to make tackles. There was one thing for sure, from the first day that I came became the um, defensive coordinator, we were not going to miss very many tackles, and we were not going to loaf. Period. Whether it was a pursuit drill or whether it was in a group drill or whether we did 707. The other thing that a defense has to do is to pursue and have the attitude that I can make that tackle. If I'm the tackle on the opposite side of where the ball is run, I can hustle down the line of scrimmage and tackle the ball carry before he got to the line of scrimmage. That's the type of person I wanted to have on my defense. When we played 707, if the ball was thrown to the right and you were the defensive back on the left, you better not be standing there watching the ball. You better be getting your ass over there to get to the ball carrier and get a hand on the ball carrier that became a force that I had to convince them to do even though that they were 36 yards away from the uh, the ball that was no excuse that you can't make a tackle you know it may be that one uh, that tackle that would save us from getting a first down which could possibly win the game when the ball was either run or passed, every defender had to get to the ball, or I was on their behind. If you did not hustle to the ball, they had to do pop-ups. They had to do extra sprints after practice. They had some type of punishment that I, I um, had for them that day. Whenever we watched film in small groups or uh, small team uh, situations, every player knew that all 11 players had to be on the pile, ball carry underneath, or they had to be in the view of the camera. Okay. If you looked at the film or if I looked at the film and say someone ran a tall sweep, fly away, or whatever you want to call a stretch play. Well, in our pursuit drill, if you looked at it on film, you would see all 11 defenders during that clip. All taking the proper angles, and it would look like if you had set up dominoes, and you hit the first one, and then they all fell one after the other. That's what you would see on a film. You would see everybody taking the proper angles, and you would see a line of defenders going to that ball carrier. Once the once the uh, the players understood the the concept of the pursuit. It was automatic. There was no, there was no learning after it because we did it so often. I didn't have to remind them that when you're pursuing, expect the bat to cut across your face. We did it twice or three times a week. Next, what did I do to make the players tough? Other than screaming at the kids, in which I didn't scream at the kids, too often. The other thing I did was make the defense tougher, I uh, was to make them more competitive. And the one drill that I did at least every week was three to get 10. The concept, the goal was I gave the offense three plays to get 10 yards. The defense had three plays to prevent the offense from getting. 10 yards. If the offense got 10 yards, the defense was punished. They did pop-ups or they did extra running. If the defense kept the offense from scoring, the offense did pop-ups or they did extra running. So it made us competitive every day. I've heard recent coaches say that we can't do 3 to get 10 today because we're afraid of our kids are going to get hurt. At this point, during our practices, Coach Potter and Coach Zimmerman's goal was to score. They were offensive minded. They tried to come up with all kind of trick stuff to to get the ten yards. And my goal was to keep it from getting the damn ten yards, you know. So it became very competitive. I would laugh at them when they couldn't get, and they would laugh at me, and would just kind of piss me off that they got ten yards. And, and the guys that were on the defense out there, they would get pissed off that they would get 10 yards. So either Tuesday or Wednesday of every week throughout the season, we did three to get 10. And we didn't get any kids hurt. We just had to be tough-minded. Hell, these kids could be walking up the stairs, trip up the stairs, and hurt themselves before they even came to practice. So if you were soft, then you just didn't play, okay? Uh, I didn't know uh, what the defense to use when the offense was over there because you know they were they were making stuff up. Uh, the defense uh, used keeping them from scoring as a badge of honor. They wanted to force turnovers. My defense wanted to force turnovers. They wanted to score touchdowns. They wanted to rally back. Back in the day, it may not be the same today. I know that Perry's a little bit different or whatnot, uh, but my thoughts were that we had to make them tough. So therefore, shoot, let's, let's get after it. And as the younger kids came across the street from Perry Middle School, then they saw what it was like to be a Falcon. They saw that you hustled. They saw that you were hitters. They saw that you didn't back down to anybody. These guys didn't back back down to anybody. They didn't care who you were. Uh, I, I talked to uh, a group uh, f- a few weeks ago, uh, the 97, 98 guy. They were a team, they were always pretty tough and they're pretty competitive. Uh, the 02, 03 groups, they were always together. I never saw them without one without the other. I mean, if there was something that was going to go down, all of them were going to be there. Okay, that's just how competitive they were. Today, because of, you know, run pass options and so on, you know, football has changed from when I was the defensive coordinator. Uh, They throw the ball more. The defensives um, and defensive coaches are electing to play a 3-5 defensive front which you know, gives you a chance to cover passes and so on. I, I am not a fan of the 3-5. I'm just not. I, I watch it. I see it. I see the flaws in it, and I see how that defense can be had. Okay? I see the defenses. Uh, to me, a 3-5 defense does more catching of offensive blockers than they do Attacking and pressuring the offense, you know. If I had the O two O three or those teams back in those days, we had a lot of speed. I feel that I could have defended anybody, anything today with that group because they were fast. They were good. They were able to pressure the offense uh, in order to put pressure on those offenses back then. Uh, or even today, in order to put pressure on offense, you have to maybe blitz. Okay, and to me, when you blitz from being four or five yards off the uh, the ball, then I feel it puts you out of position to make tackles. Because if you're starting at three yards back and you're running up to the line of scrimmage when you run, nobody runs with their feet parallel. No, they run with their feet off balance. And when your feet are off balance, one foot in front of the other, then you can't tackle people that are that are making cuts. Okay? If I was coaching today versus the RPO type deals, I'd run a 4-3 defense. I'd always like to have an extra guy in the box to squeeze that line or pressure the quarterback. Finally, the, the last topic that I'm hope I haven't bored you too much. The final thing um, and talking about defense philosophy is dealing with prevent defense and goal line defenses. I didn't believe in a prevent defense until the last play or two of the game would probably be about 10 seconds left on the game clock. Okay. Lining people up and backing them off. And there's two minutes to go and you letting them throw a five yard pass and them getting it seven yards and letting them come down the field. I didn't believe in that. I believed in putting pressure on the quarterback and and tackling them and, and keeping the ball um, uh, inbounds and the clock running. Okay. I would rush four, as I said earlier. Uh, my linebackers would line up about five yards off the receivers with one goal, and that is to harass uh, and slow down the receivers. Okay. Tackle them inbounds and keep the clock running. When it came to the goal line, I would basically play uh, a a six-man front. I would use a a scheme that is designed to protect the red zone. I I gave normal defensive calls, only uh, adjusted when the defensive backs, uh, I told my defensive backs that the closer the offense got to the goal line, the closer you got to the receivers. Okay, the rule was simple. Don't back up. Don't don't give up the goal line. The tighter you got to the goal, the tighter you got on them. Okay, do not back up. Uh, They were to jam receivers and play football. Once the opponent worked their way down to the five-yard line, I'd put in that six-man front. And I'd have a secondary, which we had a guts two, which meant that I had two inside linebackers and three defensive backs. Or I had guts one, in which I had a six-man front, one linebacker, uh, four DBs, and we were playing man-to-man. With that being said, I taught the linebackers and defensive backs what is known as zone-to-break, which is a man-to-man concept. This meant that I was going to take their man – uh, until a receiver crosses, okay. Once it happens, the defensive backs or the linebackers or combination of of both would switch men. If receivers did, if two receivers did slants, there would be no switch. If two receivers did outs, there would be no switch. Things stayed the same. If two receivers near the goal line went, you know, you know, stemmed five yards, and suddenly they switched, then the defensive backs would switch. They would switch men. And a lot of times when they would do that, the quarterback would throw it to the defensive back because they wouldn't think that the defensive backs would switch. Still, we worked uh, with defensive backs communicating all the time so that we could do zone the breaks. It's, it reminds me that when I see it done at the college level, and they get down there to the goal line, and the defensive backs have to take their man-to-man, and they go over wherever they go, and they screw things up and rub one another off of them. I say, why didn't they just zone to break that, and then they would come right to him? Depending on the uh, receiver's alignments in the zones, the defensive backs would make a solo-solo call, which meant I've got my man wherever he goes. If There's no switching. The closer the two receivers got to each other, then the defensive backs would communicate zone to break. So that was an alert for them to be ready for the switch. If they don't switch, I've got my guy man to man. If they do switch, I'm switching my responsibilities. We were good at doing this and we rarely ever screwed it up because we practice it all the time in the open field and on the goal line. So overall, looking at the defense, I evolved from a four-man front to a five-man front. A lot of help through the years with Coach Potter, Coach Wade, Coach Zimmerman, a lot of trial and error in order to develop what I felt that was the best defense for the Falcons at that time. And we were pretty daggone good on defense. A lot of uh, success of the defense I have to give to Coach Potter because he allowed me to have the most athletic players on the defense. If your offense, the opponent's offense can't score, Coach Potter would score with his offense. We may not score a lot, but we're going to score enough to win the game. And when whenever he was he was pretty conservative, we ran the ball quite a bit. And then we also he was he was smart enough to spread things out because uh, people said that, you know, he's going to do this. And he was he was able to change things up and um, we were able to be fairly successful. Well, I mean, I don't want to bore you too much more. Uh, Those are my thoughts on my defensive philosophies. Uh, I could not have been a successful defensive uh, coach without having players that bought into what we were doing. Uh, These players worked together and had a common bond. Uh, They were brothers. Uh, They were able to be with one another all the time. Uh, The players liked to hit. They liked punishing offensive players. They could tackle well. Those who played for me, Uh, knew that I had their back and they knew that uh, we were able to uh, get things accomplished. And I also was able to let them, let them uh, have uh, input on what we do. You know, if I I did a special defense or whatever, I would let them come up with a name for this. You know, this is what I want to do. What do you want to call it? And they'd say, well, let's call it this coach. And then they would buy into it. Like, Hey, we have some say. So that was all part of, that was all part of growing, Defense did their job. No one tried to be a hero. You know, you have responsibility. Do your responsibility. Don't try to do too much. I know times have changed and kids have changed. Uh, However, uh, I really believe that what we did back in the day, we could still do today. Even though society believes that kids today are soft, a team can Get better sooner than later. Well, that's all I've got. Sorry if I bored you too much, but I I wish I could show you some film and how I did things. But with uh, podcasts, you can't do that. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, If you decide to come back, you have got other episodes of Coaching Falcons that you are welcome to to um, go back and, and take a listen to if you're on a long drive and I hope that you um, uh, get to come back and listen again thanks and go Falcons we have come together to fight for victory best friends with one another 225 one, one big family zero. so come on my Falcons Blitz let's out, join on number our team three, one, is finally ready to Ritz fight for number one. one. Our team includes one, three, many things to help us three. this fight. Guts, one, courage, Cover and poise Zero, show one, three, Tomahawk right. cover three. And if we don't do what is right, three, one, seven, we'll find out what is wrong. Right. Our team Base, will never three. give up. Our three, team one, will seven, never three. give up. Three, Our three, team will never give up. We've been fighting for too long.